Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can use one of the Blue Pew Bibles that are under your chair or the chair in front of you. You can find that on page 823. We'll be flipping around a bit, so I would encourage you to have your Bible open and ready with me. Today we're in week three of our series on ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. Last week, we narrowed our focus down to local visible church and began with the distinction between true churches and false churches. You can distinguish a true church from a false church by checking for two marks, the right preaching of the Word of God and the right administration of the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, which launched us into our discussion last week that we're continuing today and into next week on the church's exercise of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Last week, we answered the question, what is baptism? And today, Lord willing, we'll be answering the two questions that follow, what is church membership and what is church discipline? As we saw last week, salvation is a work of God's grace by his spirit. As we proclaim the gospel, Jesus is building his church. And Jesus gave visible local churches, visible, tangible signs, the ordinances, to distinguish those people who were being loosed from their sins, those people who were believing the gospel, they were being saved, from those people who were rejecting the gospel, those who are still bound in their sin, so to speak. The ordinances function as visible boundaries between the church and the world, believers in Christ inside, non-believers on the outside. The ordinances have been given to the church by Christ as they are exercising the keys of the kingdom of heaven for binding and loosing visibly, tangibly here on earth, according to Matthew 18. According to Matthew 28, we saw last week, baptism is the first ordinance, the very sign that signifies submission to the lordship of Christ and entrance into his covenant community. It draws a line between not a member and a member of the body. So in our time today, we've crossed that line. We've been made disciples of Christ. We've passed through the waters and we've entered into this thing called the local church. Christ's body manifested. We are members of this local church and as disciples of Christ, Christ's, as disciples of Christ, I'm sorry, members of this local church, we're called to disciple one another, which creates what we call church discipline. That brings us to our text this morning, Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. Read along with me as I read. If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Three overarching points in our time this morning. The first, like last week, the keys, the church, and the ordinances, focusing in on membership and discipline. The keys, the church, and the ordinances. Membership and discipline are not ordinances, but the exercising of the keys through our proclamation of the gospel and administration of the ordinances create church membership, which necessitates church discipline. So it's important to understand what the scriptures teach about both. Second point, what is church membership? We'll define it. And the third point, what is church discipline? We'll define that as well. So first point, the keys, the church, and the ordinances focusing in on membership and discipline. Last week, we began this discussion about the connection in the New Testament between the keys of the kingdom of heaven, the local church, and the local church's administration of the ordinances. We talked a lot about baptism, but there are a few things I want to bring back to mind 
as we connect last week to this week in terms of church's, uh, church's membership and the church's discipline. Okay, so look here with me at Matthew 18. You noticed as we read, Jesus is instructing the church on how to do what we call church discipline. Let's look back at verses 15 through 17. If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens, you've gained him. If he does not listen, take two or three with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. 17, if he refuses to listen to them, the witnesses, tell it to the church. As you can see, there's a sin. There's an awareness of this sin. There's a confrontation between one brother to another over that sin, calling the brother to repent. If that fails, the next step is to bring others along with you. If that fails, bring it before the whole church. There's increasing levels of accountability as this person proves through his unrepentance that he really isn't a brother. And I think here we find our connection with last week by asking a few questions. Verse 15, first question says, it says this, if your brother sins against you. Now, first question we need to ask is how do we know he's our brother? Or to put it another way, it seems from this text that you would have the confidence enough to affirm that this person is genuinely a believer like you, especially if you expect them to repent when you go to them. Where do you get that confidence? The next question is about verse 17. Jesus says, if he refuses to listen to them, those witnesses that you bring, tell it to the church. Well, what church do you tell? Or to put it another way, it seems that having gone through this process, there's a definitive church that you tell who must in some way consider this man to be a brother themselves to the point where at the end of verse 17, it's the church that as a whole considers this man not to be a brother, but a Gentile and a tax collector. How are they able to do that? How do they do that? Well, we find the answers to these questions when we look to what Jesus has commanded the local church to do, to exercise the keys. We preach the gospel, and when disciples are made, people repent and believe the gospel that Christ died for our sins and he rose from the grave for our salvation, that if we repent of our sins and trust in him, we're given eternal life. People believe that message, and we love and we care for them by testing their profession of faith in Christ to affirm whether or not it's credible to affirm whether or not the gospel that we've received and we've preached is the gospel that they've believed. And when we can affirm that this person has been made a disciple of Christ, Matthew 28 language, we've been commanded to baptize them. We administer the first ordinance of baptism because baptism is a visible sign of a person's submission to the lordship of Christ and entrance into his body, the church. Where did this person come from? The outside. Disconnected from Christ's body. Where are they now? The inside. Connected to Christ's visible body, the local church. Apart from their public profession of faith through baptism, it's not really visible to us whether or not the Spirit has done something in them. We need to be wise about this church. People can say a lot of good things, but until they're willing and ready to go public with their faith in Christ, we can only take it at face value. So notice what's happening. Have you ever had a DTR? You know what a DTR is with some friend, some coworker, some client, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, to define the relationship kind of, kind of conversation? I'm a strong advocate for front-end DTRs with people. Okay, first you make it clear there's a relationship there. Then you explain to someone your intentions with the relationship, goals, plans. You define the relationship with them. Well, the church has been called to exercise the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And that is a weighty calling. One that we will not do perfectly because we're not perfect. But we must do it faithfully wisely. So when a church hears a person's profession of faith, we test to see if it's credible, meaning we are responsible to make sure it's really the gospel they believe. And if it is, we baptize them, and in so doing, 
We're giving visible shape to their new reality. We are defining the relationship that they did not have before, but they do now. That is, they're no longer walking as children of darkness, but children of light. They're no longer slaves of the world, but slaves of Christ. They're no longer lost sheep, wandering about, blind, but they've been found, and they've been brought into the fold. They've become members of Christ's universal body. Yes, members of us here, Christ's local body. The relationship between them and their Lord is now defined. The relationship between them and us is defined as we mutually covenant together. Now, answering the question that we had from verse 15, how do you know they're a brother? Because we've already judged their profession of faith and subsequent baptism in Christ's name. We call them brother. But just so we're on the same page, just because I can hear a profession and I can see a baptism doesn't mean I, as another brother, along with two or three other brothers, have the authority to go to the Christian that I met at the coffee shop, who is my brother in Christ, and church discipline him. Why not? Because there's no DTR there. Me and these two or three have covenanted with one another to exercise the keys on and with one another as a local church. But that Christian at the coffee shop hasn't done that with us. He's not a member of our church, so we therefore have no authority to exercise the keys in terms of binding him. So that brings us back to our second question from verse 17. What church do you tell? The relationship between these brothers here in verse 17 and their church seems to be formal. It seems to be defined. It seems to be identifiable. It seems to have some means by which you can affirm the relationship between these brothers and the larger church gathering because the church is about to exercise the keys on a wayward person who was considered inside, but now they are to treat him as if he's outside. And there, I think, is the answer. You tell the church that recognizes you and this brother as inside. How does a church recognize someone is inside? The keys and the ordinances. Together, the local church formally affirms a person's profession of faith and subsequent baptism and welcomes them into the body because in the body together, we obey the commands of Scripture together to love one another to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, to build one another up. That defined, identifiable relationship is called church membership. And there's no such thing as church discipline apart from church membership. So we'll start there first. But a few questions to consider before we give definition to these things. First question to consider. How can you consider someone outside of the church unless you've some definitive line for who's first inside the church. I'd say you can't. If there's no criteria by which we judge who's inside, there's no way to claim them as outsiders. Second, how can a church discipline someone if it does not have some kind of authority to do so with that person? It can't. Doing things that way rings more of abusive authority than it does of anything helpful. And what we see here is commanded by Christ. This is not abuse of authority. A church is commanded by Christ to do this. But how? How do you define that relationship? I would say church membership. So let's focus in on church membership for a moment. Second point, what is church membership? The words ecclesia, church, and melos, member, are not found together in the way we'd want anywhere in the New Testament. For me to point to this verse or that verse and say, hey, here's church members, here's church membership. It's not there. I mentioned this when we talked about the universal church a few weeks ago, right? The word catholicon, Catholic or universal, it's not a New Testament word. It's not in the New Testament. But it is a valuable word that the New Testament, that we use to to gather together what the New Testament teaches us about 
this thing above the local church. Again, like the word Trinity, it's not a Bible word. But the very foundation of our faith lies in the validity of that theological concept. These theological concepts are derivative of what the scriptures teach us. And this is true of church membership. We get specific member languages from the passages in the New Testament that describe the church as the body of Christ. So we're going to look at these, and then we're going to consolidate what we find. So first text, let's turn to, flip over to Romans 6, verse 17 through 19. Romans 6, 17 through 19. We're here to get context on Paul's use of the word melos, member, in Romans 12. Paul uses member language in, here in chapter 6 to make a point that all who are in Christ are no longer slaves of sin, but are slaves to righteousness. So we must give the members of our bodies over to righteousness. Look at verse 17 through 19. He says this, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you were once, pre, just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Verse 19 is, is humbling because it's true, right? We have natural limitations for understanding spiritual things like this. So Paul has first explained what is spiritually true of us, and then he gives us a tangible metaphor, a picture we can see, the members of our bodies, our limbs. He continues this metaphor in chapter 7, verse 5. Look at that. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. And down to verse 23. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Now flip over to Romans 12. Okay. Having used this metaphor about members at length already, he keeps the metaphor but changes the main point. So look at Romans, Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Okay, our minds should still be thinking he's using the same metaphor as before. This is true. Go continue the verse. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Okay, here in verse 4, he makes the transition. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, here's the transition, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Paul finishes out chapter 12 as he talks about our individual spiritual gifts and how they contribute to the overall health of the one body, how we're to love one another and live together as members of the one body. And this is only able to be done within the context of a local visible church gathering. You saw the transition. He went from members of his body as slaves to sin using the same metaphor to now we the church are members of one another, the one body. Paul does something similar in 1 Corinthians 6. Flip over there with me. He does it in chapters 10 through 12. We'll look at those in just a second. But 1 Corinthians 6, verses 15 through 20 first. I'll read this. 15 through 20. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. 
Flee from sexual morality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now, this is a little different of an angle than what Paul said in Romans. There, he used the metaphor to make it clear that Christians should not present their members as slaves to sin, but to righteousness. And then later, he takes that metaphor to make the point that we're members of one another, the church. Here, he's given a tangible example of what it looks like when you do submit your members as slaves to sin. And he amplifies it because he makes explicit that Christians have been made members of Christ. We've joined to him. We've become one with him. So flip forward to chapter 10, verses 14 through 17. We've seen in these last few texts so far, Paul uses member language and soma language, that is body language, together. So look at the connection here with me in verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Paul uses body language here to make the connection. And he he uses body language in chapter 11 when he gives instruction on the Lord's Supper as being done as one body, but transitions in chapter 12 again to member language when he talks about the gifts that each member is given, like he did in Romans 12. Now, because Paul is exhorting the Corinthian church both about the how and the why of spiritual gifts being given, I would say in in, in 12, he is speaking generally about how members within local churches are to build one another up. This is definitely one of those places where you think, yeah, universal church. All believers have been baptized by the Spirit, 100%. That's true. But he's using this metaphor of members to define how members of this local church should function together in the one body. So chapter 12, 12 through 27. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care For one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. I think it's obvious at this point that membership is an important concept in the New Testament, especially since God has composed the body with many members. We've seen we are members of one another. We're members of Christ. 
Every member is different with different gifting from the Spirit, but we are all essential to the health of the one body, and God has designed it this way for the health of the one body as it is gathered, as we see it locally and visibly. Last text to look at. Flip with me to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Now, in my personal opinion, I believe Paul's letter to the Ephesians is the best place to go if you want to understand the beginnings, the means, and the ends of church membership. I'd encourage you to read it this week if you have opportunity to. I'm not saying that membership is the main point of Ephesians. But I am saying that this is the best place to look in one place and see the transition from the Holy Spirit's saving work in a Christian, the Christian's connection to Christ and to his church, and the commands for how Christians should live within the church and within the world. But for now, let's look at verses 1 through 16. Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you. Okay, that's plural. He's been speaking to the saints of Ephesus, according to chapter 1, verse 1. Urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you, plural, were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us. This is a similar flow. This is a similar transition of thought as Paul did in Romans 12 and in 1 Corinthians 12. Notice what he does. The grace was given to each one of us, According to the measure of Christ's gift, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Here it is, verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up, that is, as the body, the local church, as the body, he continues, in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint which is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now here in verse 16, Paul doesn't use member, he uses Opse, he uses a word for ligament or joint. This is the same language he uses in Colossians 2, 19. Let me read that for you. And not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. Paul doesn't use the term member here, but these joints and ligaments are functioning in the same way, many smaller parts making up the one whole. Now let's consolidate what we've seen before we move on to church discipline. I have eight statements for us to consider. To offer, as we see the New Testament, create this body shape composed of its members, what we've called church membership. Statement number one, Christians are members of Christ. We saw that in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 15. Another way the New Testament says this is that we're united to Christ. We're members of Christ. Number two, Christians are members of one another. It's Romans 12, 5, Ephesians 4, 25. So we're not only united to Christ, but to each other. We can say in Christ, we are united with one another. And this is mutual. It's not just me to you, but it's you to me, both of us. 
Number three, individual members compose the one body of Christ. That is Romans 12, 5, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12, and verse 27. We can think about this in the universal invisible sense, the true body of Christ, but we must not forsake the apostle. Transition in the text to gifts of believers in these cases, and the purpose of those gifts was for visible, attainable unity in local churches. Number four, individual members have been given gifts for the unity of the one body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 25. The universal, invisible church as God sees it is one, and it cannot divide. It is the true body of Christ, sealed and secure, awaiting the consummation when the Lord comes and brings all things to himself. But the divisions in these texts are real-time. They're real-time threats to Christians in localized, visible churches. Paul has commanded Christians to pursue unity in these visible contexts. Number five, the church is the body of which Christ is the head. That was Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. Now, here's my connection back to, last, uh, back to week one on the church, okay? Number six, the universal invisible body manifests itself in local visible bodies. Okay, last two connecting points from last week on baptism. Number seven, invisible members of the universal body manifest themselves as visible members of local bodies. And number eight, local bodies exercise the keys. And as they do, they create local church membership because the local church is its membership. One author put it this way. Church membership is not about additional requirements. It's about a church taking specific responsibility for a Christian and a Christian for a church. It's about putting on, embodying, living out, and making concrete our membership in Christ's universal body. In some ways, the union which constitutes a local church and its members is like the I do of a marriage ceremony, which is why some refer to church membership as a covenant. It's true that a Christian must choose to join a church, but that does not make it a voluntary organization. Having chosen Christ, a Christian has no choice but to choose to join a church. Last thing about membership that I want to show you is what the scriptures give us as prerequisites, so to speak, to that relationship, a defined relationship. Flip over to Acts 2, one verse, verse 41. It says this. So those who received his word, Peter's word, his gospel proclamation, were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Notice, before they were added... That is, to the church. They received Peter's word, and they were baptized. This is the regular pattern we see in the book of Acts. People receive the gospel. They believe it to be true. They repent of their sins, and they put their faith in Christ and are subsequently baptized before being added to the church. That is, before being formally recognized by the church as inside rather than outside. Now, admittedly, there are a variety of ways in which local churches today define who's inside and who's outside. I've heard some say it's those who regularly attend that are members. Some base it on whether someone gives financially or not. Some say it's those who jump right in and serve. Some boil it down to just signing your name on a line. But we don't do those things here at RBC. We see here in Acts 2 that the only prerequisite or prerequisites, if you want to break it down and be technical, for church membership is baptism upon a credible profession of faith. When the local church ensures that someone has been baptized upon a credible profession of faith, they are making sure the line is clear between who they've brought into their care on the inside and who is outside. Which brings us to the concept of church discipline. So turn back with me to Matthew 18, verses 15 
through 20. What is church discipline? Just like church membership, you will not find the words ecclesia, church, and paideia, discipline, together in the New Testament for you to point to this or that verse and say, there it is, church discipline. But again, the concept is there and we cannot avoid it. When people hear church discipline, if they've heard it before, oftentimes, immediately, they think of what's called excommunication, which we see here in Matthew 18. Excommunication, or another way to put it is excommunioning, as some writers put it, is the undesired end of church discipline. It's not the sum of church discipline. In fact, we can actually break down church discipline in the New Testament into two categories, formative church discipline and corrective church discipline, okay? Excommunication is the undesired end. Hear me when I say that. It is the undesired end of corrective church discipline, and we'll spend most of our time there. But first, briefly, what is formative church discipline? What is that? Well, formative church discipline happens through instruction from the Word of God. We do this in a variety of ways here at Redeemer, all the way from the regular preaching of the Word of God, instruction from God's Word during our Sunday morning gatherings. We do it at community groups when we hear from God's Word together, one-on-one discipleship, individual Bible reading. All these are formative disciplinary things. The Word of God teaches us, it instructs us as Christians how to live as disciples of Christ. It's teaching us how to think, how to act, how to live together as Christians while we await the Lord's return. If you want a reference to formative discipline, look at texts like Philippians 2 or Ephesians 4. We read a little bit of that earlier. These texts teach us, they teach you and I, how to live rightly. That's formative church discipline. Now, corrective church discipline, on the other hand, is brought about when we're living wrongly. When we are living contrary to our gospel profession, we've sinned in some way or have a pattern of sinning that requires correction from the word of God. We see this in a variety of ways here at RBC as well. If not, we should feel the freedom to do so. We see it when a brother goes to another who's sinned against him in some way. We see it when we notice patterns of ungodliness in one another's lives, patterns of sinful behavior, and we confront those things with the word, which is itself breathed out by God, is it not? Is it not profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness? As you should see, corrective church discipline starts from the ground up. Lord willing, We are regularly being watchful of one another and catching these patterns when they begin, confronting them, repenting of sins, restoring brothers and sisters, and walking in the light together regularly. This is one of the best ways we can grow in love and in unity and in purity. But it does not always work that way, does it? Sometimes people don't repent. What do you do if they don't repent? Well, Matthew 18 gives us a process. Let's look at it one more time. If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So what is happening? A man whom the church brought in as a brother is now living in unrepentant sin. He's been confronted by multiple people, doesn't budge. It's now brought before the entire church, and the entire church renders a judgment. They exercise the keys and effectively excommunicate him from being a member of the church meaning they renounce their affirmation of this man's baptism upon a credible profession of faith. Another way to put it is they disfellowship with him. And therefore, as we will see next week, he's no longer allowed to partake in the Lord's Supper. Look back at verse 17. 
If he refuses to listen, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. The process of corrective church discipline began not here in verse 17, but in verse 15, when the brother sinned against another, and the other brother went to him and told him. Flip with me over to Galatians 6.1. If you can't get there fast, I'll read it for you. Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. The reality is if the brother repents of his sin, when you confront him, the corrective process is over. Restore him. He's forgiven. Forgive him. But if he doesn't repent, the process continues. And this process varies per case. Sometimes it takes a long time. Sometimes it takes a short time. But the gauge, however, by which we are called to measure it is not the length of time that it takes, but by the balance between the person's sin and their repentance. Are they repentant? Flip over to 1 Corinthians 5. You read it earlier. I want to point a few things out here. Let's walk through it. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who's done this be removed from among you. So here Paul comes to the conclusion that this man should be removed from the body. He should be excommunicated, connecting back to Matthew 18. He, he should be considered as an outsider to this church. Verse 3, For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit, and as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you're to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Two things to notice here. First, it's the whole gathering assembled that Paul says is responsible for this. They're responsible to do this. Second, the purpose of disciplining this man is so that his flesh might be destroyed and his spirit might be saved. We want this person to repent. We want them to turn to Jesus for forgiveness of their sins, to be reconciled to him and reconciled to us. That's what we want. That's our desired end. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he's guilty of sexual morality or greed, or as an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Notice in verses 6 through 8, the removal of this person, the leaven, is necessary for the health of the rest of the church for the church to remain unleavened. Or to put it another way, Paul says you need to put this person out before sin spreads throughout your church, thus endangering the entire church's purity. He continues his thought in 9 through 13, and notice how he categorizes these people. He categorizes them. Verse 10, he's not talking about outsiders here. We do associate with outsiders as outsiders by sharing the gospel with them, by loving them, by serving them, bringing them into our homes, sharing the gospel with them over meals, bringing them, inviting them to the service. But verse 11, we don't associate with the people who claim to be brothers, but live in such a way that they can be categorically defined by their sin. They are a sexually immoral person. They are a greedy person. They are an idolater, a drunkard, a swindler, we aren't even to eat with such a one, Paul says. Then lastly, notice in verse 12, 
we are to judge those inside the church. God will judge those outside. It's important to know who's inside them. Skim over to 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Same chapter. Paul says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In verse 11, I think Paul is reminding the members of the Corinthian church that they all used to be outsiders as a warning for them to not keep living like it, but to rather live as they are inside, a member of Christ's unleavened body. I think here, because of his reference to being washed in the name of Christ, Paul's actually pointing them back to their conversions, their regeneration by the Holy Spirit. He's pointing them back to their baptisms. The moment when they were washed, they were made members of Christ's body. And he's saying, don't live like you're on the outside. You're on the inside. Flip over to 2 Corinthians 2. Just a, just a book over. Verse 5 through 8. There's a man here in this text that's being restored to fellowship with the church. Now, it's debated whether or not this is the same man from 1 Corinthians 5, but either way you take it, whether it is the same man or not, we see here what happens after someone has been handed over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh, and they repent. We restore them to membership. Look at verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he's caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you, the church. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn, listen to this, turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. That's the desired end. That a brother would repent and that we would forgive him and comfort him and that we would reaffirm our love for him. So let's consolidate what we've learned about church discipline overall from these passages as we close out our time together. Four statements. Number one, church members are liable for church discipline. What do I mean by that? That is, church members are both responsible for carrying out church discipline on erring members, and church members are subject to church discipline. That is, this is done out of love for Christ. I hope we've noticed that. It's done out of love for Christ and for the purity of Christ's church. We are called to judge those inside, and this is done formatively and correctively through both instruction and correction one to another. Number two, corrective church discipline is a process that is done with a purpose. The timing of this process is case by case. Some sins allot the time frame for one, two, or three, and the church to urge this person to repent. Some sins are so repugnant and public that the process should go a little faster. Faster, not because we simply want to disassociate quicker and get the person out quicker, but because the sin has disqualified this person's profession of faith to the point where we can no longer affirm they are a Christian. And for the sake of the purity of the church and Christ's name, we are to excommunicate them. Number three, excommunication is the undesired end of corrective church discipline. Undesired, because we want our brother to repent. We want him to be restored. We shouldn't want to get to that point. But if it does, Christ commands us to do it. A person is excommunicated from membership because they are characteristically living in unrepentance. Whatever that sin might be, and they're unwilling to repent of it. 
Look at what the New Testament says about this. I'm just going to say these. You don't have to flip there. Galatians 5, verses 19 through 21. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. If someone's unwilling to repent of any of those sins, they're to be removed. Other more specific cases that require excommunication is like this. Idleness. 2 Thessalonians 3.6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. Another one, divisiveness. Romans 16, 17-18. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Another reason for excommunication, heretical teaching. Galatians 1, 8 through 9. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And the last one, leadership failure. 1 Timothy 5, 19 through witnesses, so that the rest may stand in fear. Leadership failures can come as a result of unrepentance in any area of a man's life. Number four, last statement. Local bodies exercise the keys, and as they do, they remove, excommunicate people from local church membership because the local church is its membership. One author puts it this way, the local church, Jesus' key caring institution, vouches for the credibility of a person's, of a Christian's profession through baptism and the Lord's Supper. Church discipline comes into play whenever that credibility is called into question. It's driven by a single question. Does the church still believe an erring member is really a Christian such that it's willing to continue declaring so publicly. In short, church discipline is all about the reputation of Jesus on earth. Church, it is our love for Christ that we should submit ourselves to the authority of a local church. It is out of our love for Christ that we fight to protect the purity of his bride, his church. It is out of our love for Christ that we should take sin seriously in our own hearts and in the hearts of others who claim to be our brothers and sisters and in cases of unrepentant sin to discipline those members who claim to be brothers inside but live as if they are still outside. May the Lord find us faithful in the way that we love one another for his name's sake and for the purity of his church. Let's pray.